Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, get ready. God is about to talk to you. Go. You can tell him. It'll be all right. All right. And you may be seated. Now, if you're visiting, no, I'm not God. But this is what's going to speak to you today. Amen. So we are wrapping up our This Is Us series. And I guess you can say that this is sort of like the anchor sermon of the series. And today we're going to talk about thankfulness. Everybody say thankfulness. And if you think about it, it's pretty appropriate considering that we just got off Thanksgiving. Um, Did you all have a good holiday? Amen. Uh, Any Black Friday shoppers out there? Let me help you out for a moment. Because I did a little Black Friday shopping, right? Then I went back Saturday morning to the mall. The mall was completely empty and the prices never changed. Just a little tip for you for next time. That you're all crazy out there, two, three, four in the morning, not realizing that you could have slept in a little bit and then just catch it on Saturday morning. But anyway, talking about Thanksgiving, okay, of course, it's all about the food and the eating. Speaking of which, little Logan and his family were having Thanksgiving dinner at his grandmother's house. And everyone was seated around the table as the food was being served. When little Logan received his plate, he started eating right away. Logan, wait until we say our prayer, his mother reminded him. I don't need to, the little boy replied. Of course you do, his mother insisted. We say a prayer before eating at our house. That's at our house, Logan explains, but this is grandma's house and she knows how to cook. (laughs) You know, there's probably a few kids out there that might actually think that way, by the way, you know. Anyway, anybody out to eat a little too much? You know you ate too much when you get on the escalator on Black Friday and it came to a halt, right? Because you were on there, right? But anyway, uh, it's a good time of the year. I tell you right now, for me, anybody who asks me this, they're going to get the same answer. Thanksgiving for me is one of my favorite holidays. I don't know about you, but it's really one of my favorite holidays. And that's why as we begin this lesson today, I want to start by really simplifying Thanksgiving by stating that Thanksgiving or thankfulness is a response. Write that down, okay? Thankfulness is a response. Thankfulness is not about a word. I mean, we say we're grateful, we say we're thankful, but we're going to learn today that thankfulness is actually a response. And what I'd like to do with this lesson today is help you understand, first, what we're responding to, and second, what should be our response as a result. I'm going to repeat that, okay? We want, to, we want to learn today what we're responding to. That's the information part. That's the knowledge part. And then we're going to learn how we respond. So the first response, which is knowing what we're responding to, corresponds to God and what he communicates to us. The second response, which deals with what should be our response, corresponds to us. So there's a part that God has and there's sort of like a reaction on our part. So the first thing we are responding with thankfulness to, write it down, it's an obvious one, is God's love. How many are appreciative of God's love? Okay, now, I can quote you a barrage of verses that talk about God's love, but I just want to leave it to just one, aside from the fact that probably most of us know what First of John 4, 8 says, because it says, God is defined by love. It says God is love. And so because God is love, 
that definition of God is manifested in John 3.16, which I'm sure we're all very familiar with. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only. Everybody say one and only. If you have the King James, it probably says his only begotten. And I'm going to tell you why I'm emphasizing that. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And by the way, he had only one son. Everybody say one. Don't get any worldly idea that there's another way. There is no other way. Amen. And I hope that as you come to Faith Church today, or even as a visitor, we can hope clarify this for you, that there is no other way. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 14, 6, and do me a favor, just correct it in your power notes, because I might have put John 15 by mistake. But John 14, 6, listen to what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, everybody say no one, comes to the Father except through me. I don't know about you, but you do not need a theological professor to explain that verse. Because he says two things. He says, I am the way. And number two, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so glad he said this because it made this pretty easy to defend. In other words, I'm not defending what I think. I'm not defending an opinion. I'm defending a statement of facts that Jesus, the one and only Son of God, has proclaimed. He proclaimed he is the only way. Now, either he's lying or he's telling the truth. And we have to come to terms with that. I really believe that one of the things that creates doubt when we're witnessing is some of us maybe are still struggling with this. We're still struggling with the fact that Jesus is the only way. And that's why you need to be sure that you became born again so that the Holy Spirit being indwelled in you will provide you with the witness that you need to know that he is the only way. There is no other way. And I love the fact that he simplifies it. Okay, Either it is true or it is not. Okay, it reminds me of that scene from A Few Good Men. Anybody seen the movie A Few Good Men? It's probably my second favorite movie uh, after The Godfather, right? So when you look at the movie A Few Good Men, I love that scene when Tom Cruise asks Jack Nicholson about what kind of danger Private Santiago was in. And Colonel Jessup responded, is there another kind? It's sort of like us understanding that with Jesus, there is no other way. That's why in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, salvation is found in no one else. Everybody say, no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. What you have to understand there is, there is no room for negotiation. And every believer that has been born again and indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you need to come to terms with that. Because if you don't, you're going to allow for the enemy to give you just a little doubt so that when you witness, you might hold back. You don't have to hold back truth. Can I hear an amen out there? Truth is supposed to challenge. Truth is supposed to convict. Truth is supposed to leave people maybe for a moment offended, but thinking. Are you hearing me? Yeah, a little offended. Who are you to tell me? I'm not the one saying it. He's the one that's saying it. I'm just the messenger. Okay? And this is what he is saying. You have to come to terms with that if you want to have an encounter with him. The only thing that causes fear, like I said before, in sharing the message is if we doubt this. So, it's his love we're responding to. So, then the question is, okay, so how do we respond to that? Knowing that knowledge. Watch this. Knowing that we've been born again. Knowing that Jesus is the only way. So, how do we respond? Write it down. We respond with the same thing, with love. 
Okay? We respond with love. That's why John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 says, A new command I give you. Now, this is Jesus talking. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this. Everybody say, by this. Now, here's what you have to understand. Jesus is about to define what the church should look like and what the church should act like. Now, if anybody has ever heard me preach before or teach before, whether it's midweek or whether it's even here on the pulpit, you're probably starting to notice that I use a lot of very similar verses. In other words, somewhere around any sermon that I'm going to preach or teach, I'm going to sneak in great commission and great command. And I'm going to tell you why. Unfortunately, it is the least command that's followed by the church today. Yes, I'm about to mess with you. Turn in there and say, get ready. Pastor Vegas is going to mess with you right now. Okay? You can tell them. They won't get offended. It's okay. Doors are locked. They ain't going nowhere. Okay. See, it's sort of like you're watching a movie at night on your TV And all of a sudden, McDonald's shows up, right? And they don't just show up one time. They show up a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And by that fourth time, man, you're about to hit into your car and get that Big Mac. Can anybody relate to that? They just engrave it. Watch this. Until you react. Until you respond. And it might not be at that moment, but I guarantee you, when you wake up the next day, man, I'm thinking about a Big Mac. I think I'm going to have lunch at McDonald's today. Right? Why? Because they engrave that thing in you. Whether it's McDonald's or Red Robin or put whatever your favorite food there is in there. Here's the thing. The reason why the body of Christ has not been reacting the way they should be reacting to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment is because it is not preached enough. It is not. Even though it is the most important message that Jesus wants to deliver to his church. So now let's go back to the verse. Verse 35. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples, meaning that you are my church, if you love one another. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is talking about the church for the most part because he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And if we are honest, we would probably score low on this because how many people from the body of Christ do you actually hang out with? Do you actually associate with? Do you actually fellowship with? No, I'm not talking about here. This is easy. Oh, yeah, I fellowship. I come to church on Sunday. Well, let me ask you a question. How much of the following do you actually do? Test yourself. We're supposed to practice this love by encouraging each other, praying for each other, challenging and sharpening each other, share others' burdens and meet their needs, suffer together, rejoice together. How much of that right now is happening in your life? And if it's not, I hate to tell you this, but you're missing something. And God wants you to get connected. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you need to get connected. Go ahead, tell him. And the only way you can do that is by doing something outside of the realm of just coming to a church service. Okay? And that's a real great test for each and every one of us, by the way. So the first priority, obviously, you know, is the church. But let me just say this. You may be here today and you say, well, I don't have time. I really don't have time. Well, God is not asking if you have time. He's saying once you're born again, you need to make time. Why? Because you're a new creation. You've been born into a whole new kingdom. You've been born into a whole new body. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. Is anybody hearing this today? Or maybe you're trying to plug your ear because you don't want to hear this. Say, You're in the world, but you are not of the world. That means that we're separated somehow. That means that we're a little different. Now, we're not weird. Can I hear any man out there? 
I know some Christian folks might be. Okay? You know, they go a little over the top. I get that. But it doesn't mean that we're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Okay? It just means that we're going to influence this world for the kingdom of God. We're going to be a light in the darkness. That means revelation. That means, you know, bringing the right information to the people so that they can know who Jesus is. That is responding with love. So the first priority is the church. But the second priority is the world. And we can do that through acts of kindness. Pastor Frank has been talking about acts of kindness. We talked about the acts of kindness cards. Guess what? You see how the church is trying to equip you to do the work of the ministry? So these things that we do when we hand out invitations to the greatest and and cause of act of kindness, that's not to say that we are a good church. That's to equip you to do the work of the ministry. So we're trying to help you out. Turn to your neighbor and tell them they're just trying to help us out. Go ahead, tell them. Okay, we're just trying to help you out. We're trying to equip you so that you eventually can do the work that Christ is calling us to do. All right? So we talked about the first, God's love. The second thing we respond with thankfulness is to his grace. How many are so grateful for God's grace? Amen. And when we talk about grace, we're talking about salvation. Write that in there. Salvation. Now, Romans 10, 9, 10, most of you, if not all of you, probably know. Why? Because we sort of made this the sinner's prayer. But today, I'm going to give you a whole different viewpoint on this particular scripture. Okay, because even though the church made it the sinner's prayer, it was never God's intention to make it the sinner's prayer. Okay, now how many want to learn something this morning? Okay, and we say this all the time. Okay, so let me let me let me get into this. Romans ten nine and ten, very familiar, very popular. Here's what it says: If you declare with your mouth, everybody say declare. Yeah. That's, there, there's two words that we need to highlight here and to make sure we understand. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, everybody say believe. So those are the two most important words that we need to really understand what it is telling us, okay? If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. Here's the problem that we have. We think that a person gets saved because they said the sinner's prayer. We think that's when salvation takes place, okay? I'm going to correct that because here's the thing, okay? It's not the sinner's prayer that saves you. As a matter of fact, listen to this. It is the tangible declaration and the tangible believing that is the evidence of your salvation and not the prayer. Because can I tell you something? Anybody can say the sinner's prayer and leave unchanged. Because we're thinking, all right, so if I do that... That's what's going to get me to salvation. Now, let me tell you something, okay? The sinner's prayer's purpose, which came from man, by the way, is not something that God made up, okay? Is to help you let the world know that you mean business. But can I tell you something? When we do, and here comes the good news. Are you ready? When we do an invitation for someone to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the moment you raise that hand with conviction and say, yes, I want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's the moment you experience salvation. Not when you do the sinner's prayer. Can you imagine, my goodness, if we had to wait for the sinner's prayer, and from the moment you raised your hand, uh, you know, and between the moment you raised your hand and we did the sinner's prayer, the rapture takes place. Wait, I didn't say the sinner's prayer yet. Hold on. Can you imagine that? No. 
The moment you raise your hand, that is the declaration. Yes, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The sinner's prayer is just the seal, is sealing the deal. But for your sake, not for God's sake, because the moment you make that declaration and you make it with conviction, it is at that moment when you experience salvation. Nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. We're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But keep in mind that that's where real change takes place. When you have that real encounter with Christ and start to believe you are changing your priorities. Write this down. Because something you begin to love changes your priorities. Anybody remember when you fell in love with your spouse? Wow, only two hands. You all need therapy out there. Serious therapy. Can't remember when you fell in love with your spouse. I'm sure your spouse is looking at you like, give you that, what up look, right? You know? My point is, <laughs> my point is, it, when you fall in love with something or someone, it changes your priorities. I mean, look, my priorities have changed throughout the years. I'm still in love with my wife, okay? But I happen to fall in love with a few other folks like Wesley and Amelia and especially the one that totally has me completely governed and ruled, my grandchild, Noel. My girl has me majorly wrapped around her finger, her hand, her head, her body, everything. Okay. My daughter sometimes hates bringing her to my house because my daughter's telling her, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't eat that. Noel's like, Papa. And here's what she does. She'll come up to my kitchen and start pounding on the pantry door because she knows what's in there. She'll be like, and I'm like, go ahead, baby, take whatever you want. <laughs> and the first thing she grabs for, the marshmallows. And Amelia's like, no! I'm like, yes! Okay? Changes priorities. I used to tell Amelia she, she couldn't eat that. <laughs> you know? All right? But it changes your priorities, okay? So when you make a declaration, you are taking a stand for something. You're taking a stand for something. When you have that real encounter with Christ, you not only take that stand, priorities change. You know, the gossip group, the Imperials, anybody remember them, by the way? One hand, probably Roz over here on the left. Okay. Okay. In, in case you don't remember the group, the Imperials, okay, they had this one great song. It was called Priority. But in that song, there was a great statement. And here's what that statement said. It says, you know, it, it was a statement about the love of God. They sing, there's no love until you make it to priority. Think about that. There's no love until you make it to priority. One of the greatest moments of salvation happened on the cross of Calvary. It's amazing how many times we hear about the two thieves and Jesus. And it's just amazing the revelation that I keep getting every time I think about that situation. So let's, let's look at this for a second. You got... So you got Jesus in the middle, you got the guy on the right, you got the guy on the left. And here's the sad thing. Both have a small representation of the church. So let's take the carnal guy, the guy on the right, right? Here's the thing. So he kind of recognizes who Jesus is. He knows this is a man of power, okay? He knows this is a man that people probably really fear. So when he's looking at Jesus, he's selfish, he wants to get something out of it. That's why he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are the Christ. Now, how many of you know that he lost it when he said if? Because there are still people in the church treating Jesus like an if. 
Are you hearing me? So if you are the Christ, you know what? Now he tried to make himself look good. Save yourself. Oh, but save us too. Save yourself and save us. He's talking about the now. Selfish. Hey, get us off, get, get us off the hook. Because you, yeah, I believe, I believe in you to a certain extent. You know, get us off the hook, man, because you got the power, right? Now let's look at the other guy. So we have unrepentance on that side. So the other guy, okay, I'm going to put in Frank Vegas terms, by the way. He looks at the guy over there and he says, will you just shut up? And here's what he says. Here comes repentance. You and me deserve this. We earned this. Yeah, we earned this. We deserve this. But this man, he's innocent. This man has done nothing wrong. He's beginning to surrender. And then he nails it when he says, Jesus, I know who you are and I know why you're doing this. Will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? Notice, it wasn't about, hey, Jesus, when you remember me, hey, can, can, can I hang out with you? Hey, Jesus, if you can get off that cross, you think you can help us out a little bit? Hey, Jesus, you know, I have family out there. Is there any way, you know, you can, you can take, no. He says, one thing, remember me. I'm a sinner. I deserve this. But I know why you're doing what you're doing. I just want you to remember when we go into your kingdom. Jesus, seeing the genuineness of his repentance and now his conversion, he says, from this day moment, from this moment, you'll be with me in paradise. That's why my brother and sister and the friends who are visiting me today, the moment you raise your hand and say, I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior, Jesus will tell you, from this day forward, from that moment forward, you'll be with me in paradise. That's when it starts. That's when it all happens, okay? Um, and that's why I love the story of the two thieves. And how do you respond to God's grace? Okay, so we're seeing this, right? We're seeing salvation. We're seeing grace. Okay, Lord, I get it. So how do we respond? Write it down. Our response to salvation is to simply lead others to Jesus. It's to lead others to it. Can I ask you a question? How many are really grateful for salvation? That's great, but you can't keep it to yourself. Yes, you got to share it. You got to lead others to it. Matthew 28, 28, 29. You probably heard it a hundred times. And I got news for you. For as long as I'm preaching, you're going to hear it another hundred times until you start doing it. Matthew 28, 29 was the last command that Jesus gave the nearly 500 disciples that were on that mountain as he's ascending up to heaven. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We have to challenge ourselves with this. Let me tell you something. Anybody who knows me knows that I am heavily convicted by this. That's why most of what I do is outside of the four walls of this church. Even last night. Now, I'm not trying to glow. I'm not trying to put anything on me. But, you know, after the service, I went to New Milford to launch yet a 23rd Spanish home group. Because it was a family that wanted it. So we got there, and I had a couple of leaders come with me. I signed them that, 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 but we launched it. But my point is this. Real ministry takes place at an intimate local level, your level. That's where real ministry takes place. We're just equipping here. Our job is to equip. Our job is to make sure that you are equipped enough with the word of God so that you can go out there and make your mark. You've heard me say this many times, and I will keep repeating it. When I'm up here, I am 
you know, in, in the position of a pastor. So I'm, I'm fulfilling the fivefold ministry that I was called into. But the moment I step off this pulpit, I am a disciple just like all of you. Meaning that now I got to go out there and do my part and make it intentional. Make it a priority. In other words, I'm not going to wait to come to church to get people converted. I'm going to try to intentionally see if I can get a few people together so I can share the gospel with them. And every single one of you is commanded to do so. That's why Jesus tells us, go and make disciples. You know, it's amazing to me that we have a lot of conferences, right? I mean, there's conferences on just about everything and anything. Worship, leadership, how to be a better, uh, you fill in the blank, right? Even church growth, but most church growth conferences are talking about numbers, but they're not talking about disciples. And we need to change that. Nothing wrong with the conferences, but you hardly ever hear about conferences on evangelism. Hardly. I've yet to hear. Uh, The last one that I heard about was when Billy Graham used to do them in Urbana, Illinois. Actually, it was called Urbana. But you very rarely hear or see or, you know, find out about conferences dealing with evangelism. I'm not talking about church growth. Church growth is marketing. And I'm going to tell you something right now. God didn't intend Facebook to replace our job to go out there and witness. Are you hearing me this morning? Turn to your neighbor and say, I knew I shouldn't have came to church today. Go, you can tell them. They won't get offended. Okay. Facebook is a great tool. Yes, it is. I use it all the time. Believe me. But it was never intended to replace the job that God has called me and you to do. We have a job to do. All of us. And isn't it great that God wants to use us that way? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about that. That the maker, the creator of heaven and earth and the universe wants to use me to be a light in the world. Sounds like a good deal to me. Because as long as I obey, he'll take care of the rest. It's a great opportunity, by the way. But again, and I'm not saying that all the conferences are bad. God bless the conferences. But let me tell you something. Back when I was growing up in church, even in middle school, okay, you know, we, this is all we were taught, by the way. It was all about evangelism. That's all we were taught. You know, worship was almost like a secondary thing, you know, but it was all about evangelism. That's why now I grew up in a legalistic church. Believe me, if you came into my high school cafeteria at Peace Girl High School, my youth group stuck out like a sore thumb. Why? Because back in the day, the ladies wore dresses to their ankles. And we guys, you know, we, we, couldn't, we weren't even allowed to wear shorts. So we were all dressed up. You know, it was a, a legalistic thing. And it might have not been the best teaching, but can I tell you something? We were unashamed of what we stood for, even though it was, it was not necessarily the right thing. I'm not going to say it was the wrong thing, right? Because we all know the dangers of legalism, but that's what we were taught. But why did we have such zeal irregardless? I'll tell you why. Because evangelism, man, was just imputed in us. That's all we heard about Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So guess what? It didn't matter. Middle school, high school, college, we went out there and we evangelized. That was the thing to do. And the moment you enter into evangelism, now you enter into the enemy's battleground. But let me just make sure you understand something. You enter into the enemy's battleground. Are you ready? Not to fight the enemy because he's already defeated. See, now, if you think he's not defeated, then you are in your own battle with him. But the moment you step into the world of evangelism, you become a major threat to the enemy. See? A major threat. 
And let me tell you something. There's nothing more powerful than one individual, male or female, accepting this assignment to go make disciples and begin to actually fulfill it. Man, that's when demons really tremble. See? Because they know that once you enter into that arena, okay, the anointing will follow you. The anointing of God will be with you. And the enemy can do absolutely nothing about it. That's the kind of power you have. The question is, do you believe it? Turn to your neighbor and ask him, do you believe that? That's the kind of power you carry, though. Everywhere you go, the moment you begin to witness, you carry that authority with you. But that's the way we are supposed to respond. I mean, you know, we talk about all these conferences. I'm going to give you the one-minute conference on how to grow a church. Are you ready? Very simple. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do it in less than one minute. Are you ready? Go out, fulfill the Great Commission, and fulfill the Great Command. That's all you need to know. Turn to your neighbor. Tell them. That's all you need to know. Go ahead. You can tell them. That's all you need to know. That is all you need to know. Now watch this. Go and do it. It's not about just knowing. It's about doing it. It has to be intentional. You have to make time for it. Yes, it will take some of your time. But aren't you glad that God or somebody God used to take time to reach you? See? Third thing we are to respond with thankfulness to is, write it down, his mercy, which refers to his forgiveness. This is the touchy one. So let's make believe for a moment that you just walked into um, Dr. Frank Vega's office of psychology. Okay? Because this is the therapeutic session. So make believe you're in a theater seat and just kind of lean back a little bit. Right? This is therapeutic. And I know I'm starting this off with a little bit of humor, but it's going to get pretty serious because I know there are many, not an exaggeration, in the body of Christ that are still struggling with unforgiveness. But I'm going to help you out today. My objective with getting into this subject today, which is going to get heavy, is to make sure that before you walk out of here, you're going to be released of any unforgiveness. How many would like to experience that today? I want to make sure. That before Now, but in order for me to do that, I got to teach you some hard truth. And as long as you accept the truth as truth, not something that I'm just trying to manipulate or make up. But as long as it's God's word and you apply God's word as truth, I will guarantee you. And the reason why I can say guarantee because God is not a liar. I will guarantee you that when you believe and surrender to that truth, you will experience healing today. But let me give you a, a, a tip here. Okay. Now, I've been in this thing for a long time, so I know what I'm talking about. You can't come to a prayer line and say, whoever is leading, whoever is going to pray for you, whether it's outpouring or, or communion, right? And say, can you pray for me so that I can forgive somebody? That prayer is not going to make it past the ceiling. You know why? Because forgiveness has to come out of your own will. It has to come out of your own will. And you're going to understand why as I get into this. In other words, if you want to really experience inner healing because you're struggling with unforgiveness, then the first thing you need to do is to forgive. Because the moment you forgive, then you experience healing. Watch this. Okay, let's go to a few scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Galilee, first of John 1 9. If we confess our sins, and you notice that word is what? Plural. Because, and if you're new to faith church, get this one. 
The word sin, singular, is always talking about your condition before you came to Christ. You were a sinner. Notice that you are a sinner, yet maybe you thought, well, I'm not such a bad person. I don't commit sins, right? No, it has nothing to do with the act. It has to do with the condition. So when you became born again, now you've been set free from the penalty of sin, which is death. You are no longer considered a sinner. You are now considered one who is just and sanctified. How many know that's good news? That's your new title, by the way. That's why the Bible calls you a saint. Now, I know some of us might struggle with that. Well, I don't think I'm a saint. Yeah, Jesus knew that too. That's why he went to the cross. Hello. But the moment you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you were sanctified. Everybody say, I'm sanctified. It It shouldn't bring pride in your life. It should bring humbleness and humility. Knowing what Christ has done for you. It is Christ. It is Christ's act on the cross that has changed the label from sinner to saint. Not you. It's what he did. Okay. But let's get back to this whole issue of unforgiveness, right? Or forgiveness. So a lot of the consequences, because let me tell you something, okay. Um, When you look at even Ephesians 4.30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. These are all God's promises. So this is what we're going to respond to. Look at all these promises. He's forgiven us, okay? All of our trespasses, okay? Um, he sealed us until redemption. Now, this does not mean a free ticket to sin because there are consequences that we put ourselves in as a result of sin. Every time we commit a sin, right, it'll either offend God. Oh, well, it always offends God, but it'll probably offend somebody else. So, and there's always consequences to that. And those consequences, please hear this, did not come from God nor the devil, but from us. Can I hear an honest amen out there? We want to blame the devil for the consequence. No, the devil didn't make you do it. Come on, somebody. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't make you do it. You did it. So if you did it, you have to experience the consequence, the tangible consequence of that sin, even though you can definitely still have forgiveness from God. But there's still the consequence. But you brought that upon yourself. You know, the devil's probably laughing because I don't understand how all these believers give me credit for something that I had nothing to do with. We want to blame everything on the devil. No, you got to see part of asking God for forgiveness is taking ownership of what you did. Because you're trying to do the same thing. Here's a great revelation. God just gave it to me just now. You're doing the same thing Adam and Eve did. Right? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the devil. See? Are you hearing me? So we have to, so my point is that all God wants you to do is be, take responsibility. And the moment you take responsibility is when you experience release. Because here's the thing. You know, when we ask for forgiveness of a sin committed, it's not because we're not saved. It's because until you don't do that, you're going to experience the effect of sin. The effect of sin is separation. That's why before you became born again, you were separated from God. And then when you became born again... You became reconciled to God. So every time we commit a sin, do some of us feel bad? Can I hear any man out there? Do some of us maybe might be tempted with the thought, I wonder if Jesus still loves me. Why? Because you're experiencing the effect of sin committed, but it doesn't mean God has let you go. He's still got a hold on you. And he's never going to let you go. Aren't you glad about that? He's never going to let you go, no matter what. 
He will not let you go. That's why John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one, say no one, will snatch them out of my hand. Even you can't snatch yourself out of God's hands. It reminds me of, let's say, you guys ever had that experience with your kids where, you know, they're tugging away at you for whatever reason. Maybe they're about to get a little spanking or something. I don't know, you know. Or maybe, you know, they want to do something that you will not let them do because you know in the end they're going to hurt themselves. So you still grab a hold on them and they're biting and scratching and screaming or whatever. But you will not let them go because you know that if you let them go, they're going to harm themselves. Right? That's the kind of grip Jesus has on you. He will not ever let you go. But if you don't have enough of the word of God in your life, you're going to think that he let you go. Because you're you're, you're thinking that way because of the consequence. Because you don't realize that the consequence does not change God's love towards you. Is anybody learning anything this morning? So, all right. What is our response then? Okay, here it comes. Get ready because here comes the therapy part of this thing we are write it down to forgive and you might say okay okay well let's let's dig let's get really deep into this because look what jesus says in matthew 6 14 and 15 he says if you forgive other people when they sin against you when they get when they sin against who yeah Notice it doesn't say when they sin against God. It says when they sin against you. That's because you have experienced the offense. Okay? You, you're the one that, has to, that experienced the offense. Now watch this. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Notice the word sins is plural. Why does it say this? Because I'm going to tell you something. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be things that, guess what? Jesus is going to hold us accountable to. Because of either our disobedience or because of sins that we didn't forgive others for. But that's another subject for a whole other day. Okay? But here's the thing. Okay? I believe, um, you know, in my personal opinion. And by the way, I really try to make my personal opinion right. Hello. Okay? But I believe the ability to forgive is the greatest evidence of a person who has been born again. I really believe that. You know why? Because it's the hardest thing to do. Oh, listen, you can be born again and show up in church every Sunday and harbor unforgiveness. See? But I have no doubt that the ability to forgive is the greatest evidence of a person who has been born again. You see, when we don't forgive, and this one you may have to write down. I'm going to repeat it three times. When we don't forgive others, we are denying our common ground as sinners in need of God's forgiveness. I'm going to repeat it. When we don't forgive others, we are denying our common ground as sinners in need of God's forgiveness. And since I said I was going to repeat it three times, I got to fulfill my word. If we don't forgive others, we are denying our common ground as sinners in need of God's forgiveness. Anytime I hear someone say, well, I don't know if I can forgive him or her, I have to question if that person is saved or perhaps have not gotten their mind completely renewed in this area. We need to somehow settle the fact that we are not perfect and we need his blood covering every single day. Am I preaching truth this morning? 
We need his blood covering every single day. And can I tell you something? Most of the anger and the bitterness you see in the world, in politics, in relationships, in how people treat other people, or even the hurt can be rooted to a source of unforgiveness, no matter what the issue is. How many heard this name before? Dr. Larry Nasser. Raise your hand if you've heard that name before. Okay? Let me explain. When I explain it, it's probably going to come to light. Dr. Larry Nasser was the Olympic women's gymnastics doctor who is accused and has been proven guilty of sexually molesting over 250 female gymnasts. He is probably one of the most hated men in America today. Or maybe the world for that matter. Very hated. Now, let me just put this clause out there because I don't want people to think that I'm insensitive. I'm not undermining in any way, shape, or form what he did because he deserved jail and he's probably going to rot in jail for the rest of his life, okay, for what he did. But here's what you have to understand. Now, here's where I'm going to get real deep with you, so hang in there. As hard as this is to take, if he becomes born again, he will end up in heaven and the accusers that, or, 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 yeah, the, the accusers that have not been born again, and I'm going to speak very plain English here so that I get the point across. The accusers that have not been born again, okay, are going to end up in hell. I want you to just think about that for a second, okay? He deserves what he got in jail, but if he becomes born again, how many of you know he can still experience salvation? Okay? But if the accusers, because I think there was like at least 242 that said, only two that I saw said, I forgive you. At least 242 says, I will never forgive you. Now, watch this. Are you ready? You might say, oh, Pastor Vega, I don't know about that. Well, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if I stole something from you that's really important and I got busted? And now I'm going to receive my sentence. Here's the thing about sentencing, which is pretty interesting. You ever notice that when a person is about to be sentenced for something they did, whether it's crime, whether it's murder or theft, okay, the accusers there are saying, yeah, you deserve that. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad you're getting jail time. I'm so glad and glad, right? Are you following me? Don't lose, don't lose it. Don't lose me now because here comes the point. Are you ready? Let's go back to the thief on the cross. The good guy, Right? Probably stole from your great, 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 and a thousand times great grandmother. Okay? Stole some of your most important possessions. Maybe he even murdered a few people because he got caught in the act. So now he's getting the death sentence, right? And you are one of the victims. And you're like, yeah, I'm so glad to see what you're getting. And all of a sudden, you hear Jesus say, from this day forward, you will be with me in paradise. What? <laughs> Jesus, wait, 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 Jesus, you don't know what he did. You know, he killed my mom or this or that, and he stole my jewelry and my gold and everything. Jesus, you don't understand what he did. Jesus will look at you and say, you seem to not understand what I've done for you. Amen. See? Now, again... I'm not making light of what this man did, okay? I'm simply stating a fact that unless someone gives those girls the right kind of counsel, they're going to carry that bitterness for the rest of their lives. And they need deliverance. 
They need to be released so that they can experience the love, joy, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Notice what it says. Surpasses all understanding because a secular mind will not be able to register with that. See? A secular mind is going to say, I don't get it. Yeah, you don't get it because you still haven't been born again and your mind has not gotten renewed yet. But the moment you're born again, you realize, wow, Jesus was willing to do that for me? Yes. He paid the price with his life. That's why our response, okay, is to forgive. And one of the things that I want to do today to help everybody out is I'm only going to do one altar call today. And that altar call is going to be about you coming forward, okay, to release any unforgiveness that you're harboring so that you can go out here in peace and really begin to fulfill all the things that God wants you to fulfill. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay. Because here's the thing. The enemy does not want you to know about forgiveness. Here's what he doesn't want you to know. Forgiveness releases. It releases. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, here it comes, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must. Everybody say must. He didn't say, so you also should. No. He said, so you also must forgive. The best therapy you can give yourself is to forgive. And the moment you do that, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to experience inner healing like you've never done before. I, I believe that there are people here that have been on so many prayer lines, you think God is not listening. No, he is. That's why he brought you here today to hear what I got to tell you. Because the moment you surrender and say, all right, God, you know what? I'm going to trust you. I forgive that person. Listen, I forgive that aunt, uncle, mom, dad that maybe physically abused me, sexually abused me, verbally abused me. I forgive that teacher. I forgive that person. I forgive all these people that have hurt me, stole from me, betrayed me. Listen, you can sit there and say, Pastor, you don't understand. No, I clearly understand because I've experienced most of all that. So I am a living witness of what can happen when you can release yourself by forgiving everyone and anyone who has ever caused you harm in your life. That's where real healing begins to take place. Last point. Are we learning anything this morning? Point number four. Amen. To God be all the glory. He loves you. That's why he's telling you the truth today. The fourth thing we are to respond with thankfulness is God's provision. Now, I got to tell you something. I had about 10 of these things, you know, about 10 points, but I just wanted to narrow it to what I think is the four important ones. God's provision. In other words, he will take care of us. How many believe that this morning? God will take care of you. Yes, he will. First off, let me say from the onset that we are blessed. Do you believe that? You know, that video that you guys saw, some of you probably already saw that. It's been viewed like 100 million times already. And sometimes we really take for granted the ways and the things that God has for us. My prayer and my heart goes out for those folks in California that lost everything. So before you start griping because your turkey was too small, there are some people that couldn't have even meat on their table this past week. Are you hearing? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. You know, Believe me, I'm a carnivore. Tore into that turkey my wife cooked. Matter of fact, that I keep the hands away from my, t- my uh, plate because I might have mistaken them for a chicken wing or something. You know what I mean? Okay. 
We are blessed with the ability to succeed and the ability to prosper. So if you are sitting here this morning and you say, I don't know why I need God. I'm very successful. I'm doing okay. You know why you're doing okay? It's because he already gave you the ability to prosper. Listen, I'll be straightforward with you. You don't need to give a tithe to prosper. There's a purpose for it, and I'll get to it in a second. But don't think that if you tithe, that that's going to all of a sudden make you prosper. Because then I have to question, why is Jeff Bezos such a mil- just a billionaire today? And I'm pretty sure God is not first in his life. See? We have to understand what the purpose of provision really is in order to experience the blessing that's behind it. And Pastor Frank explained this pretty clearly that last week or the week before, that our first reason for giving is not because we want to prosper, but because it is simply an act of worship. So watch this. When we do our giving as an act of worship, we do it with joy. We do it with, like, for example, watch this. How many of us like to worship God? Only half of you. Let me ask it again. How many of us like to worship God? How many of you guys, you know, when the worship is gone? Man, you're all into that thing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Outpouring. Now I'm really going to mess with you. How come you all show up for outpouring, but you don't show up for Bible study on Wednesday? See, now you start hating me for that, right? Okay. That's all right. I'm just going to let that float out there for a little while. But let me ask you a question, though. Why is it that when it comes time for giving, some, not all, worship spirit just kind of left you all of a sudden? You know why? Because you made the mistake in separating the two. See, unfortunately, and listen, maybe we're at fault about this. Maybe we should take a little blame for this. We made tithing and offer and, and giving offering way too mechanical. I'm not talking about push pay. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the attitude and how we present it. As if it's a it's like you feel like you're paying your dues or something, right? When it has always been an act of worship all the way from Cain and Abel. That's why when Cain brought his offering, Abel brought his, God looked at the attitude, ain't no worship going on over here with Cain. But there's definitely worship over here because Abel made sure that this was the first of his flock, unblemished. He was careful in how he presented that offering to me as opposed to over here, Cain, just giving the leftover fruits that he was not interested in eating. Can anybody, or any, is anybody hearing me this morning? See, it's all about the attitude. And so when your attitude is right, it ain't about tithing and offering. It's just about giving. Because the so when you come to the Lord, that same attitude you have in your worship, you know, it's like offering time. Praise God, man! Look how God has blessed me. So let me bless Him. Hallelujah! It's all about the attitude. If you can change your attitude about giving, I guarantee you that you will never ever frown. I'm not saying we do about giving tithes and offerings again. Because you're going to realize, wow, God has truly blessed me. So you prepare. And, and can I tell you something? And I'm going to reveal something to you that's going to really bless you today. But you're going to find out that it's not the tithing and the giving that brings the blessing on your life. I'll get to it in just a second. Okay? I mean, think about Christmas. How many are, are excited about Christmas? I know the kids are. <laughs> okay. Why do you prepare Christmas gifts for your kids? Think, I want you to think about this for a second. Is it because it's Christmas? Can you imagine if you wrapped up all these gifts and your kids gave you the list and, you know, maybe you weren't able to fulfill all of them, but maybe you fulfilled the top three, right? 
And all of a sudden, man, they're coming downstairs. Now, depending on what your culture is, you know, some of you guys do it Christmas Eve. Some of you guys do it at midnight. Some of you guys do it at 3 in the morning or whatever the case might be, right? The fact is, you do it at some time, and it's usually the thunder of the kids running down the staircase. Can anybody relate to that? It's like, man, what's this thunder? It's the kids. They know it's, it's, it's opening package time. And they're ripping those things apart, right? And all of a sudden, you know, they come to you, oh, mom and dad, thank you so much. I've always wanted this. And your response to them was like, well, it is Christmas. And by the way, I got into debt doing this, so you ought to be grateful. Can you imagine if that's your response to them? See, mechanical. And that's how sometimes we treat God with our tithes and our offerings. But when you say to them, hey, this is all about love, right? And yeah, maybe we shouldn't get into debt, but why do we do it? We just love the expressions of our kids, and maybe we'll sacrifice a little bit to make it happen because we love them. So when we bring our gifts to God, we should do it because we love him. Is anybody getting this this morning? Okay. Yes. God's provision. Please get this. Here it comes. Is first and foremost for us to do the work of the kingdom. Now watch this. I'm going to give you a pretty interesting twist on this. I'm not talking about the money providing the work of the kingdom. I'm talking about so that God's provision for us will be so sufficient that we don't have to be burdened by finances so that we can be free to do the work of the kingdom. That's why 2nd of Corinthians chapter 9 verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let me tell you something. We so twisted the wrong way, this verse. Please get this. It's telling you God is able to make all grace abound to you that having all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you may abound in what? Every good work. Every good work is not a secular term. It's a spiritual term. It's talking about the work of the ministry. It's talking about the work that we need to do to impact this world for the kingdom of God. So what God is saying is, I'll take care of you. You take care of my kingdom business. Is anybody believing that this morning? It's a tangible purpose. Let me give you another scripture that we've twisted so poorly. Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We think that's for us. No. Read the whole chapter. This is Paul thanking with all his heart the Philippian church for sending so much provision that he didn't have to worry about working or where he's going to get his next meal because the Philippian church was taking care of him so that he can continue doing the work of the ministry. Here's the point. You take care of God's business, he'll take care of your business. That's why, now, if you've never heard Matthew 6.33 before, even though I've probably stated it almost every time I've preached here, Matthew 6.33 is one of the few verses that does talk about a tangible blessing from God. Here's what it says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will what? Now, I don't have time to go into that whole chapter, but if you read several verses before, God is talking about the things you need to eat with and put clothes on your back with and a roof over your head. This is the one of very few scriptures that you will find where God is telling you to seek the kingdom has nothing to do with prayer. 
I know we love throwing this in prayer services. Now, get that out. This verse has nothing to do with prayer. This verse has to do with doing the work of the kingdom of God. And well, here's what God is telling you. You take care of great commission, great command. I'm going to make sure there's food on your table. I'm going to make sure there's a roof over your head. I'm going to make sure that you will have favor with those in the world that don't even know who I am. And let me tell you why that's so true. How many of you guys work for somebody who's not a Christian? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Nice and high. Look around the room. That means even though he's a heathen, right? <laughs> Hello? But you need to get favor from that person. Amen? My point is, you don't even have to ask that person for a raise. You take care of God's kingdom, and God will take care of you. I've seen this happen so many times in my life. It didn't happen all the time. But lately, now that I really understand, in the last couple of years, I want to say the last two or three years, I've really seen this thing really come to pass in my life. Focusing on the kingdom business. Let me just focus on the kingdom business. I know God will take care of the rest. So if, if there's a need that you have, I got news for you. Please get this. If you are a believer and you know the word of God, I'm here to tell you, God already knows what the need is. You don't have to remind them. What you have to do is be, or what, what we need to do is be reminded of what he's telling us. That's why, and I'll close with this, our response then, okay, because we're talking about provision. Our response is to simply be obedient obedience okay we need to be obedient i read matthew 6 okay but now if you read the few verses before that it talks about tangible blessing but here's the problem the church has an issue with responding to the great commission and the great command this is why jesus says in luke 6 46 why do you call me lord lord and not do what i tell you see we come to church we love church And I'm pretty sure most people say, I love faith church. But God doesn't want you to love faith church as the priority. God wants you to make sure you're getting what you're receiving through his word so that you can go out there and fulfill it. In other words, faith church is not this building. Faith church is you. Faith church is not these chairs. Faith church is not all the equipment and everything that we have. Faith church is you. That's why when we take care of God's kingdom, he'll take care of ours. Did we get anything out this morning? Amen. In summary. We're about to go into a new year. Can you you believe that? 2019, right around the corner. What's going to make 2019 really different from a believer's point of view? You know, what's it going to make? You know, I don't care about your resolutions, by the way, because you're probably going to break them anyway. Can I hear any men out there? two resolutions that you should have on the top of your 2019 list and forget about the rest. You know why? Because if you take care of these two, God will take care of the rest of those resolutions. Fulfill the great commission, fulfill the great command. You take care of those two things in 2019, watch what God will do through you. It is amazing. God wants the average person, the average believer, just to begin to fulfill this so that we can see his work in our life. So, God's love, our response, we love. God's grace and salvation, our response, we lead others to it. His mercy and forgiveness, our response is forgive. God's provision, our response is obedience. Can we stand to our feet?